Yeah, so we are, by God's grace, planning to move to Uganda in August. And our longing in Uganda is to see many, many people come to Jesus and become strong and become mature and then lead others to Jesus and help them to become strong and mature. And that those people would lead others to Jesus and help them to become strong and mature until there's a movement going on of, of, um, of discipleship that infects every part of Uganda and even the areas beyond Uganda. That's our longing. And we think that our, our part in that is to be catalysts to help mobilize and equip people who can be leaders of movements like that by setting up different training opportunities and programs and, and communities. Uh, so that's what we're putting our hand to in Uganda, and we really appreciate your prayers as we do that. And if it's okay, I'd like to just, can I read, read a scripture and share for a second about it, since it's a missions moment? Um, this has been something that has been speaking to us and challenging us, but in John chapter 21, when uh, Jesus had risen from the dead and he had breakfast with his disciples, he prepared fish for them, and then he goes on a little walk with Peter, and it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And I think when Jesus, I know it's not completely clear, but when he said, do you love me more than these? I think he's indicating the fish or Peter's old life, a place where Peter had some measure of control, where maybe there was some stability, um, some comfort, some uh, something where he was used to. And Jesus says, do you love me more than that? And what I really think he was saying is, do you love me more than anything? But when we put something concrete to it, then it kind of, it has more impact, doesn't it? Um, I was talking to a friend of mine just recently, and he was sharing how three years ago he had a conversation with John Chow before he, before John went and ended up giving his life to share the gospel in North Sentinel Island. But a few months before that, he was talking to my friend and my friend is from Myanmar, and they were talking about loving Jesus and, and how difficult it is to express. And, and, and at one point, John turned to him and said, I know you love Jesus and you love him more than anything, but would you give him your passport? And my friend was a refugee. He had come to America as a refugee, and that U.S. passport meant a lot to him. It meant stability. It meant a future. It meant hope. And so he told me that even... Even now, three years later, he's haunted by that question. Do you love me? Would you give me your passport? And I think that Jesus is asking us that. Do you love me more than these? I, we were singing that song this morning. Uh, I want to be, uh, yeah, I want to be refined by fire. And uh, I appreciated Sam stopping us because I was starting to get a little bit trembly saying, wait, Jesus, are you, are you taking this seriously? This is these prayers have consequences. Are we really, are we really saying this? That we want you to have everything. Um, and as part of our journey in, in doing that and in hearing Jesus and engaging that question for us looks like Uganda and for you and, and others, it looks like something completely different. But I just want to ask if we can allow him to ask us that question. Do you love me more than these and put something really concrete in that space this morning? And then he says, when Peter's able to say, yes, I do love you, he said, go and feed my lambs. And he gives us good work to do, and he sends us to people who are hungry and broken that we can go and take that love to. So that's our heart's desire and our, and our longing, and he is well worth whatever we fill in that blank for. He's trustworthy, and he is worth whatever we might lose uh, in the process of gaining him. Uh, so Jesus, we just thank you for loving us. Thank you for our family here who has supported us and standing with us 
And we're, we're just grateful to you. And we want to declare to you that we love you, Jesus, with all of our hearts. We ask you to help us to love you more. Amen. So we, we, we snuck up on uh, Tim and, and, and Jill. I want us to pray over you guys. You really were the very first missionaries sent out from Believer's Church with back in the tall days when Roger was the lead pastor. So I, I, Roger, I really want you to pray over the ways. This is just a beautiful symmetry what the Lord's done here. Yeah. Would you guys stretch your hands out? Friends, this is what the church does. This is the book of Acts being relived all over again. Acts 13. We discern what the Lord is doing in the earth. And God appoints men and women to go in their name. And the church gathers around them and commissions them and anoints them and prays over them and shares um, the love of God and tears are shed and and uh, because we know the cost and we know the price and we know that um, the work is real. We know that the challenges are real. And Father, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the grace that rests upon them. I thank you for the beautiful way that Tim and Jill have lived out the simplicity of the gospel. Not seeking status or position or power or fame, but seeking God to make disciples who will make disciples and to usher in a movement that will see both disciples and churches being multiplied around the globe. And Lord, believing now, having spent time talking and praying with Tim about discerning, Lord, where are you sending us? We send them back out, Lord. And I thank you for, for uh, all the things that they need going forward. They need finances, Lord. We pray you continue to bring in all the finances. They need provision and health and guidance and strength and, and all of the things. And we just thank you, Lord, for them. We anoint them. And we bless them. And we say, Jesus, be glorified and honored through their life. We thank you for what you're doing in Uganda, Lord. And would you raise up men and women, missionaries. I thank you that Tim will raise up men and women who will go into hard places that we as uh, as white Americans can't go. But, Lord, I thank you for the years of investment in that nation that Tim and Jill have had that we have had as a community and we thank you Father for that uh, the gospel will go forth in Africa and we thank you we praise you and we bless you in Jesus name amen amen
Yeah, so Tim and Jill will be in the hallway after uh, our teaching time to be able to engage with any of you. If you felt something, um, at anything at all about what the Lord might be messing with you, just notice something, please stop and talk to them. I had the privilege of uh, teaching with Tim in what we call the Antioch School here for about seven years, which is intense training, minimally 18 months uh, for others as long as three here more years um, in theological training for the purpose of seeing the expansion of the church worldwide. And I just, I can tell you, I've seen Tim week after week after week. He's brilliant and he, he knows his stuff, but he lives this stuff. So he's good soil, guys. If you feel anything to invest, that soil that's already been multiplying from the time that happened years ago. In Uganda, but it's going back into it. Um, and so watch out, Uganda, because the ways are coming. Um, really excited about that. Also want to honor Raj and just, just what he laid down his life for 20 years that the gospel would re- it, Some of you guys, if you've come late in the game for us, missions wasn't a big, big deal in part of our DNA. And this guy, bled for this so that it became normal for us to do what actually is normal, which is send people from our midst to take the gospel to other places. That's normal church life. Um, so, Rod, I just want to honor you for your your sacrifice and persistence there. So, um, <clears throat> well, if you're new to Believers, I work here, and I'm going to talk a little bit <laughs> about Lead Pastor Roger was for 19 years. We worked together for 17, 18, 17 of those years. So we're good buddies. And uh, we've been doing a series uh, talking about the lifestyle of Jesus. And and if, if, if that's the life we want, Jesus' life, then we have to live the lifestyle of Jesus. And what I felt to do um, today, next Sunday, and then, is just talk about and I call this shepherding and prophetic in the sense of what is God doing in us right now? Uh, one of the things I've noticed um, when God sets up, you know, these leaders in a church, it's not because of the best Christians in the room necessarily or the sm- definitely not the smartest people in the room. But but kind of like what Sam was talking about, those just saying, OK, Jesus, do what you want with me. And he's like, OK, I'll stick you over here. And I want you to hear me uh, with this people. Come alongside them and shepherd. Keep on reminding them that Jesus is the way. Keep on, keep on, and in, 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 in pay attention to what I'm saying and doing. And, and when necessary, address that. And I feel like this is one of those moments. I feel like it's no accident. I mean, we didn't try to time Tim's uh departure you know last words from us <laughs> sounds like you're dying but but uh uh you know on today but I, I think i think what i'm addressing today is really significant for the life of our church uh of what god is doing in this life of his church okay so really that's i'm just going to kind of stumble through that and the way i'm going to do that is through uh, the story of king josiah and i'm gonna i'm actually going to read two chapters of the bible to you like, this is crazy, right? This is like, this is a long read. I actually, where there was a lot of the names you can't pronounce, I just made it a sentence. That's why it says from that, because otherwise it's just too much work. But, but I feel like King Josiah's story is 
actually, like, I would, maybe I'd call it a prophetic thing for us right now. And I'll explain to that why after we read it. And so, so I'm going to give you a little background. So <laughs> King Josiah's grandpa and dad kind of set up the stage for him to be king. It, it was kind of a rough stage they set up. So, so these guys rebuilt high places, which were places that you'd sacrifice incense to, to idols. They erected altars to Baal. They made an Asherah pole, which was kind of this combo with Baal and is kind of this fertility goddess thing. And actually, at, they put this Asherah pole in the actual temple. Think about that for a second. The idols actually in the temple, along with prostitutes who served in the temple. Okay, things, things, things were kind of wonky. They started worshiping what starry host, meaning starry, they were worshiping the sun, moon, and stars, and had altars to them. They built pagan altars in the temple. So not only was that, that temple of, you know, the, the, the huge, um, altar where, you know, where God instituted it in Exodus, where you'd, where you'd give sacrifices, but they started building other altars around that, to other gods, like right there in the temple. Manasseh actually did, did this thing where it's unclear that you ever made your children walk through the fire or pass through the fire for one of the idol gods. Pretty brutal. And then they, it, this is all in Second uh, Kings 21. They practiced divination, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. And so this was, this was going on for about 60 years. Manasseh was king for 55 years. Uh, Amon was like for two or three. Okay, so this, this was going on for a long time before Josiah became king. So that's, that's the stage you need to hear. And then what I'm going to do is if you're going to settle in. You can, you know, just listen along. The words will be up here. I'm going to read second Kings 22 and 23 out of the NIV. If you want to follow along on your phone, or your Bible, you can do so, or you can just look here. You can close your eyes and listen. So here we go. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. And so at this point, Josiah tells this guy named Shaphan, the secretary, who's a government leader, hey, get to work. We got, You know what we should do? We should repair the temple. The temple's a bit of a mess. Let's repair it. So Shaphan, the secretary, he goes to this guy named Hilkiah, Hilkiah is the high priest who's over the whole temple. And so here's what happens. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, uh, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors of the temple. In other words, temple repairs are going but then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahakam, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me. And for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us. Because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They've not acted 
in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So Hilkiah and Shaphan, along with those other guys, go to this prophetess named Huldah. And Huldah said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people. According to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read. Because they've forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made. My anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive. And you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard what I've spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. The king then ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem, the fields of the Kidron Valley, and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on, on those around Jerusalem, those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations, and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered it to the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple of the Lord. The quarters were women did weaving for Asherah. Josiah brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from Geba to Beersheba where the priests had burned incense. He broke down the gateway at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the city governor, which was on the left of the city gate. Although the priests of the high places did not serve at the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, they ate unleavened bread with their fellow priests. He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Molech. He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near the room of an official named Nathan-Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces, and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. 
The king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem, on the south of the hill of corruptions, the one Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles and covered the sites with human bones. Even the altar at Bethel, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin, even that altar and high place he demolished. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around when he saw the tombs that were there on the hillside. He had the bones removed from them and burned on the altar to burn them on the altar to defile it in accordance with the word of the Lord, proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, who, what's that tombstone I see? And the people of the city said, it marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against it the altar of Bethel, the very things you have done to it. Leave it alone, he said. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they spared his bones and those of the prophet who come from Samaria. Just as he had done at Bethel, Josiah removed all the shrines at the high places that the kings of Israel had built in the towns of Samaria and that had aroused the Lord's anger. Josiah slaughtered all the priests of those high places on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he went back to Jerusalem. The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover, this Passover, was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Let me just summarize Josiah's story. There's at least three movements I saw in it. Now I'll start with the re. The first one is there's a rediscovery in Josiah's reign of what was going down. Think about this for a second. For 60 plus years in the temple, there have been multiple altars to other gods and even prostitutes. It'd been normal if you think about it. I mean, most of us, there's not tons of us in the room who are 60 or 70 years old even. For that's a whole, for us, that's a whole lifetime, right? And so there, there have been Israelites, people of Judah, that have been going to make sacrifices year after year after year to Yahweh. And at the same time, you know, doing some other stuff too. Seeing some other stuff. Things had gotten so bad that the high priest lost the Bible. Because it's kind of like for high priests, it's like, hey man, what else are you doing around here, <laughs> right? <laughs> what's, what's your job again? 
And Hilkiah, you know, we can see that Josiah had this sense that things aren't right. And so he'd start to do, started to do some reforms. He's like, let's repair the temple. If you read the, in Second Chronicles where it repeats Josiah's story, some of the stuff he was already doing before this moment when all of a sudden they're like, wow, we found this book. And Josiah rediscovered, we have no idea what it means to worship God. What are we doing? And so it led to this next movement of rediscovery to repent. Repent is this lovely, lovely word where we we are going one direction, thinking one thing, behaving a certain way, and we turn our direction. In Greek, it's the word metanoia, which means to change one's mind, to change direction. He tore his robes, which in the ancient world was just a sign of, woe. I am deeply upset. This is not right. And out of that moment of repentance, there was a reform, a reformation, where he immediately restarted the basics. What does he do immediately? He goes to God. God, we're in trouble. What do I do? He sends his buddies to hold of the, the prophet says, what's God saying about this? I need to know right now what God's going to do. Then he gets all the people together and says, guys, according to this book, which was given to Moses, we think it's probably either Deuteronomy or the whole first five books of of the Old Testament. We don't know. But the law given to Moses that, by the way, Moses and God's people at the foot of Mount Sinai started all this by making a covenant to God. He says, guys, we get, we got to go back into this. This is what it means to be God's people. This is what it means to worship this God. So he does this Passover. He, he, he does, excuse me, does the book of the law. They, they say, yes, we're in. They renew the covenant and then they do the Passover. So immediately he just gets things down to basics. And the other thing he does is he removes the idols. The reason I read the whole chapters there is I wanted to, wanted to note that the, the, the restarting of the basics, the, re, the reformation, the reform could not happen without a thorough, thorough cleansing of the idolatry. A thorough removal of things that had been there for 60 or 70 years. Here's the crazy thing. You might have noticed that the name King Solomon came out. That he even went after idols that Solomon had put up and Jeroboam had put up. Those had been there for over 300 years. Think about that. When stuff, you know how it is. For me, it takes one week and I don't notice the dirty laundry on the floor in my house. Right? You know, it's easy to walk by it after a while. If anybody you don't believe you can ignore things, look at your garage. (laughs) What is that thing growing on the floor of our garage? (laughs) It's easy to just see it as part of the furniture, right? But Josiah not only took down the things that his father and grandfather put up, but he took down things that had been there for over 300 years. And then, not only that, he went out of his area of responsibility, went into Samaria, and started to take down idols there as well. 
which was actually politically kind of a crazy thing for him to do at the time because Samaria was a vassal of Assyria. Okay, so the question, so here's, here's rediscover, repent, reform is kind of what I see in King Josiah's story. So the question is, what does that have to do with us? How does Josiah's story help us understand what God is doing in us right now? I had a funny moment this morning where I knew um, a while ago the Lord had talked to me about this very story. And, 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 and for me, actually, it was what I felt like was a word to me, but it was also somewhat the Lord said at the time, this is how I'm going to use you. And actually, even maybe something to our church and to our city. I thought, you know, I, I wonder how long ago that was. And this morning during morning prayer, I thought, I'll look in my journal. And here's the crazy thing is, um, I journaled about this almost 10 years to the day today. And here's the even weirder part. Um, I had shared this, that, this, uh, sense from the Lord with a guy named Ben Watts. Who, who here knew Ben Watts? Was part of Believer's Church. He went down and planted a church with some friends in Florida. And Ben was pretty prophetic. And, and I wrote down in my notes that he had said, God, that is a heavy word. It's a big deal. That's powerful. But I don't think it's for a sermon now. I think that's a 10 year word. No, I'm serious. So it was April 12th, 2011, when I wrote in this. It's May 16th, 2021. So just write it about exactly 10 years. And I've had this sense that, that, that the Lord wants to just say something about what He's doing in us as a community. And I thought, yeah, Josiah, I've never talked about that. That feels so right. And then only clued into it this morning that, that I think, I think we are observers of what God is doing, not we're not the ones who initiate this stuff. Does that make sense? None of us can initiate moves of God or anything like that. We just get to play ball with Him and obey Him, and He lets us participate from time to time, and and and, and or He lets us resist it. <laughs> One of the two. We get to make those choices, right? So, how does Josiah's story help us understand what God is doing right now? Well, I I feel like as I've been watching what the Lord's been doing in us for years now. Is, is walking us into a rediscovery of what it means to be God's people. What it means to be a Christian. A follower of Jesus. A little Jesus is what Christian meant. In Antioch, they were actually making fun of followers of Jesus by calling them Christians. Little Jesuses. It's not a bad thing when people think you're a little Jesus, I suppose. But... But that, guys, we have for years, in a highly religious culture, assumed a lot of things just because they're there all the time, that that looks like what is what it's like to follow Jesus. But I don't know about you, but for me, I've always felt, not always felt, but often felt like a, a fish out of water. I felt like something doesn't feel right. I don't get this. I don't like church. I like Jesus. I just don't like church. And I feel like, not feel like, I've been watching. It's been part of what Tim Way and I got to do for a long time at the Antioch School. Just look at the New Testament over and over again and say, what is it to be a follower of Jesus and to be a people of Jesus' followers? And I'm going to suggest, nay, I'm going to say, We've got things that we've inherited 
older than 60 or 70 years, maybe even 300 years old like Josiah, that have just become part of the landscape that aren't actually part of following Jesus. And we've been talking, I don't know if you notice, we've been talking about this word, repent. Repent. It, some people, I, I, even, I, even, I even paused a little bit of using this in a main thing because it's a loaded word. For our, those of us with religious history, you, you've heard all kinds of things that have been tacked on to this word. And I, I want to tell you this, repent is the most joyful word that exists in the, the English language. Why? Because it's the moment we realize I'm sick and I have a Savior who wants to save me. Repent is a joy word. It's changing away from self-destruction into life. I, 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 I oh man. Nobody's going to be happy today, okay? Just so you know. So just nobody's going to be happy. This is... This is my repentance. I want people to like me. Forgive me, Lord. Help me to trust you. There's well-intended religious efforts trying to give us good self-esteem that stays away from sin and repentance. And the problem is, it's the way to destroy our identity. It's the only way to destroy our identity in Christ. We are going to hell without Jesus. We are a disastrous mess without Jesus dying and resurrecting and putting our faith in Him. There is no other hope. There's no other chance to talk ourselves into self-esteem and joy and I can do this. And It's I am dead. And then Jesus raises me up. So the joy of repentance is I get to become myself more and more. Does that make sense? I'm repenting from this broken person I thought I was to through the grace of Jesus alone, not my own efforts, start to become the person he's dreamed me to be. The only way I do that is through repentance. It's changing my mind and saying, Jesus, I thought life was this way. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? He's like, yes, and I love you. Let me shape you. If you like me, I spend a lot of time saying, Jesus, it's really okay. You can still, I'm likable. I'm likable. See, I didn't really screw up as bad. I didn't, Jesus loves us before we got a single thing right. He loves us as sinners. If you can't get that, you will never be grounded in a gospel identity. It's just this, Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There is nothing left to do to get his attention and get him to like us. That's the gospel. But what's left to do is to repent in to the little Jesusness. Say, oh, Jesus, you're right. I thought, I thought I could get my way with my wife by yelling at her. I repent. Will you forgive me? Yes, son. I give you the way of husbands. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Will you do that? I can't. I know you can't. You can't be who you're made to be without me. It's like Aaron Blaine said in our Mother's Day message. We are made as dependent creatures. We never get independent of Jesus. Just more and more dependent. So we're reframing. Repent 
into its, its true meaning, which is the joy of receiving the grace and forgiveness of Jesus that transforms us into the person we could never be on our own. And I can see that the Lord is reforming us. He's restarting the basics. Some of these things we've been talking about. Some of you, you guys have been like, why are we doing this thing called Jesus is the vision? So boring, I already know that. Ah, I see. James. Oh, James. He's a spicy book of the Bible. Martin Luther didn't particularly like him. James says, I get you understand that. I get you believe it. Show me your faith by what you do. Gallery getting to works righteousness? No, I'm just, I'm just quoting the Bible at this point. We cannot divorce our knowledge from how we live and act. Otherwise, we don't actually believe it. It's exactly what Sam challenges too. Dude, if you're like, don't, I don't want to sing that. Please don't. Because he'll respond to you. Just in the simple commands of Jesus, that's all the whole thing is. The fastest growing church movements in the world are just doing the simple basics of obeying Jesus. What does it say in the scriptures? Oh, that's awesome. Let's do it and talk about next week how we did it. That's how Kumar, a friend of ours, has planted over 500,000 churches in India in the last 10 years of fire-breathing disciples. They're seeing miracles. They're seeing all this stuff. They're seeing people come to Christ. They're seeing people make unbelievable sacrifice. Why? Because they're just doing the basics but living them. Yeah, we live in a knowledge-based culture. I heard it this way. Uh, I think Peter Drucker said this. A guy who works with his hands like, um, you know, you, 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 you construct a table, you can tell real fast if you did a bad job, right? If you didn't really do it. But we're mostly, many of us, in a knowledge-based culture. And we think of that way with our learning. So we think that if we know it, we've mastered it. But we've got to build the table does that make sense? Because I found this. I'm like, I know husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. I struggle to do that. I struggle to just, I just, Sundays, Sunday night is garbage time. It's annoying. Isn't it annoying to go through all the rooms to get the garbage and pick it out? And I'm, of course, like, honey, do you know how important I am? Do you hear my sermon? I mean, I was on fire, baby. Who needs to take out the garbage? And I feel this thing in myself. Is, <clears throat> oh, man. Jesus, I repent that I don't want to do what you're asking me to do, even though it's the smartest and best way to live. Will you help me? Yeah, I will, son. I, know, I get it. Let me give you a little grace on that. Ah, oh, thank you. Thanks for giving me power I didn't have till I started to actually go take the garbage out. And here's the big one here, guys, that I feel like the Lord's right in the middle of. It's restarting the basics, but also removing idols from our midst. Again, Josiah. Think about this for a second. Josiah and all the idolatry in Israel was not his fault. 
He just was born into it. He was eight years old when he became king. Like, and the reforms didn't happen until he was 26, as far as we can tell. Something like that, at least according to kings. But it was just there, right? It's just part of the furniture. Of course there's prostitutes in the temple. Like, we think that's crazy talk, right? But it's not. Heard a story uh, this morning about a friend who's African, and I'm sure um, Tim could tell us some stories too, that they're devotedly Christian, but the whole time their family is also making sacrifices to their ancestors. Now, we're, you and I walk over there and you're like, y'all are crazy, what are you doing? This is not Jesus. But they've just always done that. They've just always done that. And so they've had to have this moment with God to say, oh, we got to stop doing what our culture's been doing for this long, long time, even though it's gonna, we're, they're going to think we're kind of weird. So this is the third time I've talked about idols in the last year and a half since COVID. <laughs> like, man, God, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> I want to be the good times guy, right? <laughs> But here's the deal. Jesus does too. And that's why he wants to remove our idols. Because they destroy us. They never deliver. Like I can tell you the idols I work, uh, that, that, that I'm tempted to serve all the time. One is success. That if I just work harder, everyone would like me and my life would matter. Do you know what? Success I've sacrificed sleep. I've sacrificed energy. I've sacrificed family time. I've sacrificed relationships for that idol. And it's never, ever delivered. My obsession with that idol has destroyed parts of my life that the Lord is redeeming because I'm repenting. There's other ones I talked about Right over the, it, it, the, there was four that I felt like that were cultural, cultural idols that God was going after in His temple. We are the temple. You remember that? That was like in the wilderness. We talked about the wilderness series, then talked about it again with the kingdom series. First one being independence. I should be able to get what I want when I want based on how much I do this or that. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> oh, I think there's another little twin with independence called consumerism. The customer's always right. No customers in the kingdom. There are no customers in the kingdom. The other one is racism. Racism, what? Yeah, there have been idols we've inherited that are so in our deal that we don't even see them. It's like Jeroboam or, or Solomon stuff that, wait, Josiah, you took down your stuff your fathers did, but what about the stuff from 300 years ago? Said, yeah, I'm tearing my robes. This is not in line with the book of the covenant. We've got to go after that. Another one is money, our economics, our safety and security. I, isn't it cool that Tim Way said what he did? 
He had no idea I was going to talk about this. For some, it's my passport. (laughs) My country. This is a big one, guys. This is a big one. Nationalism. Christian nationalism. What do you mean by that? I've already had a rough conversation earlier this week, and it ended well, but it was spicy. Who is my king? Who is my king? This is a complex question in our environment. And if you already feel your stuff going up, I want to suggest God's going after this in you. Now, what you might be thinking is, oh, great, what's Guile's position on this? I don't know if you're going to like it or not. I don't give a crap. I'm serious. I don't. I'm not interested in ending racism. I'm not interested in ending independence. I'm not interested in ending greed. I'm not interested in ending nationalism. I'm interested in us being faithful to Jesus Christ. But what happens when we do that, we start to notice he messes with stuff. Stuff that we thought, why would you mess with that? That has nothing to do with this. And Jesus is smarter than we are. What if it doesn't matter that I don't understand why he'd go after that? Who is my king? Will I do whatever my king invites me to do? Actually commands me to do. So, what's at stake? What's at stake? What's the big deal? Because I feel like, guys, what God is inviting us into, and, and I can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I hope you do too, and if you don't, that's okay. But I think, I think we're in a moment. I think we're, I, I, it was, in my mind, an accident that something God spoke to me about 10 years ago, a decade ago, that God's been messing with me about. Maybe he knew I needed that long to be prepared. You guys are ahead of me. Maybe that's the deal. I don't know. But I feel like we're in this moment where God's saying, I'm hitting the gas and I'm not letting up. You can come if you like. Up to you. What's at stake? The stakes are so huge, guys. The kingdom witness to the world is at stake. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you're going to be persecuted and rejoice that you're persecuted. Rejoice. Think that the culture's not going to like you. Rejoice. Why? Because you're a city set on a hill. You're, you're like a light put out in the darkness and let your good works so shine before a watching world. They'll know what your daddy is like. Jesus says in that same sermon, you know, yeah, it's so easy to love your friends. It's so easy to bring the people around that, that think like you and agree with you. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that they will know what your father in heaven is like. Guys, the question we've got to ask ourselves is does our culture see us? Do they see the father accurately? Those that would love enemies, that would instead of going to worship services first would make it right with those who have something wrong with them. Here's what's so so dangerous about the moment we're in right now, guys. 
Romans 8 says this, is that all of creation is longing for the kingdom of God. It says the the world is groaning. All of creation is groaning. Show me the redemption of the sons of God. Show me the sons and daughters. But the challenge is, a culture that's groaning for the kingdom, left to itself, will come up with their own answers. In absence of us being the answer, they will come up with their own answers. Of course they're crazy. About, yeah, guys, I get so many books and emails, and you're welcome to keep on sending them. It may take me a year to get them all, okay? Everyone's scared to death. What position are you? What position? I'm on the Jesus position, okay? Whatever he tells us to do, we're going to do. I don't care if that kind of, at some point, well, that crazy person thinks that. Well, okay, they're crazy because everyone's crazy. That's the point of repentance. We're insane without Jesus Christ. Any solution that doesn't have King Jesus at the center will fail. You want to talk, I'm not talking about right or left. I'm talking, that's a hard sell. Not just using Jesus' principles. No, I mean literally the person Jesus. Unless we are bowing our knee to him, we will fail. That's why our witness is so important. Could it be the world could watch a people where they they somehow follow Jesus and are really opposed on other things together and they love one another? What would that be like? Everybody knows it's easy to argue. Nobody sees mercy, love. And on Jesus' terms, right? It's just, again, love's so screwed up in our culture, right? Love means affirming no matter what I do. No, if you're sticking a fork in your eye, we need you to stop sticking that fork in your eye. That's love. But could we be that people? I think we can, guys. I think Believer's Church can. I, I've, I've been here for a long time. 18, no, 98. Somebody else do the math. I've been here a long time. I've seen what God has worked in us for years. I think one of the reasons God's hitting the gas is He can trust us to say yes. To say yes to the rediscovery, repentance, and reformation. What else is at stake is I really believe the next generation, who who do you think the next generation is, not even necessarily age, but the next generation of people who, A, are in the church, B, who are outside the church. I'll give you little stats here for the statisticians among us. You're not going to feel, you're not going to feel good. You can come, you know, Griff, where are you? You got these people professionally trained in stats. I'm going to disappoint you right now, but that's okay. We can talk about it later. But these are just some things I've been, I've been reading. There's a book called The Great Evangelical Recession, written by John Dickerson. Interestingly enough, it was written in 2013. He was a journalist who was a big-time journalist who became a pastor. So he's an evangelical pastor who's also a journalist. What do I mean by evangelical? That thing has been, th- that, that's like a beaten term. For the purpose of this, in the old days, back in the early 20th century, evangelical means, I believe the Bible's true. I believe I need to put my faith in Jesus and live this stuff out and tell others about it. That's pretty much what evangelical meant, okay? It doesn't mean that now in our culture, right? But for the purpose of the way they did the numbers here, 
That, the definition I just gave you is what they did. It said of the 3.7 million United States evangelicals who are 18 to 29 years old, 2.6 million will leave the faith at some point between their 18th and 29th birthdays. That's 260,000 a year, 712 a day. In other words, leaving that, yes, the Bible's true, uh, you know, uh, that whole thing, the things I just said. I need conversion, those kind of things. Of the 2.6 million to leave, about 900,000, will eventually return based on, you know, stats of people who leave and then return, but 1.7 million will never return. The rate of departure continues to the next generation of 18 to 29 years old, and about 5 million people will have left the United States Church between 2007 and 2027. So right in the middle of that space. So it's 5 million departed from a church of about 22 million. In other words, by his stats, in 2013, there are about 22 million people in the U.S., who do all the stuff we just talked about. We're a very religious nation, right? Have you ever been with people that... I, w- I remember once witnessing to a guy, like for weeks, and he was so hard to be around that it was hard to stick with him. Until then, he started trying to witness to me. True story. Actually happened. It was like, whoa, dude, there is no way you're a Christian. <laughs> you know? Um, uh, that's 5 million departed from a church of 20 million, 3.4 million of them never returned. In other words, we're losing the central core of the evangelical church, 2020 to 2040. So we're two, this was written in 2013, so seven years later. Here's what you can see on Gallup right now. In 2020, 47% of U.S. adults, so church, synagogue, or mosque are talking about saying they have any religious affiliation. 47%, that's never happened ever in U.S. history. Um, it's down 20 points. In other words, there were 67% who would have said that at the turn of the century. And it's because people say they have no religious preference. Then you look at religious preference, it's particularly striated by age. So 66% of traditionalists, in other words, adults born before 1946 belong to church. 66%. Then you go younger, baby boomers, 58. Younger, Gen X, 50%. Millennials, 36 we didn't, at the, don't know Gen Z just yet, but it looks about like millennials. A big point here. 2008 to 2010, 51% of millennials reported belonging to your church. This is pre-COVID. Uh, in 2018, 2020, that percentage was down to 36%. All I'm hearing just by talking to people, the number of people who are not coming back to church post-COVID is massive. It's massive. Because, guys, if it's just kind of like part of my life and now I could do it from my living room in front of a TV, why would I have to get up early? Why would I have to? And what I don't want to do is we need churchianity, churchianity. No, we need, my friends, to rediscover the basics and reform. Now, here's some really good news. I know this is a long sermon, so hang in there with me. Here's really good news. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's our good news. Why is that good news? Now think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their story was this. They were sent into exile by themselves without their parents in a foreign country being raised as as future government officials, right? And it's with the most powerful empire on the planet as far as they know, Babylon. So these young guys are there, but when they get to moments of decision, they say, yeah, we're not going to eat that food. We're going to eat the food that is in, a, is in the way we follow God. 
And then when they say, well, how about this? You bow down to that idol, we'll throw you in a furnace. They're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Or Daniel, we saw you praying when the king said not only to pray to him. We're going to throw you in a pile of lions. And they're like, yeah, fine, throw me in. What? Where did those young men, where did those young men have that kind of foundation? That I mean, seriously, what kind of courage is that, right? In the face of death. Guys, if you look at the numbers and the times, they were the children of Josiah's reform. Their parents were the ones who tore down the idols. And their parents raised them so that when they got to, there's a couple more kings, about 19 years after Josiah, everyone went to exile. Their parents raised them so when they were ready, when the moment came, they could stand. What's at stake is our kids. What's at stake is the next generation. But what's possible is phenomenal, miraculous, power-altering, government-altering moments like Daniel going to the top of the leadership in Babylon. Going, get these guys risking their lives because their parents did the hard work of tearing down the idols and renewing the covenant. So, it's just a simple question. Will we do it? Will we rediscover? Will we, what takes? And you're like, what's the practical ask here? Is This is a long journey. This is one of the reasons we've been talking about the lifestyle of Jesus. What are the simple things that Jesus did to live his lifestyle? That, 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 that It's really actually quite simple. Let's pray. Let's let him form us in prayer. Let's pause in prayer. When I'm scared, instead of running to my, my immediate... Um, pacifier called phone you know we had to eventually cut those for my kids because i used them so much realize as an adult with a pacifier it's not a good look the truth is we have pacifiers don't we to keep us away from our pain from the anxiety that we feel that god wants to actually heal as we repent of our distrust And reform. Oh, this is hard. Restarting the basics and tearing down the idols. I'm, I'm, I'm just forewarning you this. I don't think things are going to be comfortable. I just don't think they are. There's something in us that, that you're like me, that we made it through this hard journey. Now we don't have to wear a mask. Let's just get back to it's not happening. And it's, I'll say it this way, with at least Believer's Church, it's not happening because of the culture. I don't think God's letting us. So I want to invite you into something exciting. I think, I think we might be standing on the backs of people who've been praying for our city for a decade, for maybe a century. Could it be that we're the answer to other people's prayers? That, we're, that we're, we're in the middle of something that's so much larger than us, we can't attribute it to any one person's good or bad leadership. We just go, God was just doing it. God was just doing it. Could we even say words like renewal, revival, on God's terms? I know we've, we've got renewal and revival fatigue in Tulsa. That has disappointment, idealism, and cynicism trapped with it. I'm aware of this. But if we just did what Jesus wanted us to do, what might happen? Last thing I'll say is, 
The call to change isn't because God is so mad at us and so disappointed and you've gotten everything wrong up to now. I'm a one on the Enneagram, which is obsessed with perfectionism, and I have OCD. That's a hard combo to live with, friends. So trust me, when I've had to work through this stuff, no, when Jesus invites us to change, Hebrews 12 says, that's proof of our sonship. See, hatred is leaving you alone. It's indifference. Just saying, I'll just let you be in your mess. But saying, son, I have something for you. I have something for you. Who Jesus endured the cross, why? For the joy set before him and then was seated at the right hand of the Father. This ends incredibly good. I was talking to Mike Arndt a little while ago, and he said, Gal, you know we're in a moment where it's inevitable that people come to Jesus. It's inevitable that something has happened. We as God's people have to decide, do we want to do what it takes to be there for them? Do we want to Lord, let Lord Jesus say, I love where you're at. I love you so much. I've got so much more for you. I've got so much more for you. And you're going to feel it. Your hamstrings are going to be sore in the morning. But do you want to come? Let's stand together. Does anybody know the name of the song that we, the second one we sang? Tried by Fire. It's got a name. Maverick City did it. What is it? Refiner. Thank you. Here's here's a here's a practical action you could take this week, because this is just, do you want to come? You may say that sounds awful. I'm not in. Um, great. You might not like being around here all that much because I think the Lord is really going to stomp. He's stamping his foot on the gas and say, let's do this. Let's play ball. Let's go for it. I don't even know exactly all the things he's going to do next, but we're praying and asking the Lord. We're engaging in disciplines. We're trying to fast and hear the Lord say, Lord, whatever you want, we're in it with you. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it associates us with others, some people I don't quite like and, and disassociates me from, but they're really cool. Try to listen to the song Refiner. It's Maverick City. I think it was, came out in 2019. So Refiner. Just listen to that this week and see what the Holy Spirit does to you. That's what's been happening to me. Just listen to this, this beautiful uh, uh, African-American brother and white sister singing together. And Maverick City's kind of doing this cool multiracial deal, worshiping Jesus and just saying, God, do whatever you want to in us. Just try that out. Lord, will you help us? Help us to hear whatever invitation. Whatever invitation. I know what mine are, Lord, and I don't like mine. But I want to be free of the need to please people. I want to be free of my obsession with success and my fear of failure. I want you to address, Lord, Lord, the prejudice in my heart for people that don't look like me or act like me. I want you to address my obsession with making sure I have enough money because I don't believe you're going to take care of me. Whatever those things are in each of us, Lord, will you say, I love you, I love you. And I want to transform you. I have so much more. So much more for you as an individual. More for you as a church. May you give us grace, Lord, to say yes. Through Christ we pray. Amen.